Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And my guest this evening is Patrick Dixon. He's co-artistic director and founding member of Opunsky's Theatre, firstly an actor for the stage as well as TV and the big screen. He also designs, directs, produces, teaches, builds sets, voices audiobooks and is a writer. He's been acting professionally since 1976, starting at the Theatre Royal in Stratford in East London. He's worked with many companies around Australia, most notably Bell Shakespeare, Griffin Ensemble, The Studio and most of the state theatre companies. His TV credits include Home and Away, Rake, Sea Change, among others. And as I said, he's been on the big screen as well. He was supposed to be bringing his show, Victor Ego or Brainstorm, to Sydney Fringe, but like so many others and us all, we are in waiting. He's here to help me keep the theatre alive by talking about the arts. Please welcome Patrick Dixon. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi. Thanks for coming on. So I am very much looking forward to digging into your knowledge of Victor Hugo, but and that's the, the French writer, not the associated to Holston, Victor Hugo. <laughs> if you Google Hugo, you get uh, inundated with fashion items. Exactly. So that may be the, you know, part two, Hugo returns or something. I don't know. We're going off track, but we'll, we'll talk a bit about that or a lot about that. So you started life in London. What was it like growing up uh, for you? Was it a creative household? Was it, you know, what, what was it like? No, I actually grew up in, on the island of Guernsey which will become, the, then that's the big link with, with Victor Hugo, but we'll get to that later on. No, but I grew up in, on the island of Guernsey, which is somewhere between England and the north coast of France. Beautiful spot. My mother is still there. In fact, my sister has just been able to visit because mm. the COVID uh, restrictions in the UK. So she's visiting again after a long period away. It was a beautiful, beautiful childhood. Beaches, I grew up in the 50s, 60s, but it was like growing up in the 30s, really. There is very, very safe, lots of cups of tea and uh, afternoon sandwiches. <laughs> Were your parents creative? Yes and no. Well, my, no, my father was a surgeon. Oh. But interestingly enough, when he was a boy, uh, he was very passionate about marionettes and he used to make marionettes and have marionette shows oh, wow. with, a, with a close friend of his. And his interest in the marionettes sort of then transformed into real bodies and working on real bodies and surgery so he was an orthopedic surgeon so that's where he took his creative problem solving gene into into a different kind of theater oh yeah indeed wow the, the arts weren't big in our family i think we had a record collection of about a dozen records with the gramophone and that was about it so i sort of picked it up in the gutter so it must have been like a very uh, small country kind of town, uh, in, in my imagining. Is that what, sort of what it was like? Yeah, it's very safe. I mean, there was about about 50,000 people lived mm. on the island when I was there. So it wasn't that small. You know, there were a number of schools and different levels of community from the families who'd lived there forever mm. to uh, my family moved there when I was four. Right. And it was sort of English, but it was English with a with a slightly exotic um, <laughs> flavour as well, being so close to France. And, of course, the heritage of the islands is Norman. So the old the old oh. language of the islands is a Norman patois. And the architecture is, is kind of not English, 
And then, of course, it was invaded by the Germans during the Second World War. So the place was littered with remnants of that period, you know, installations, bunkers and fortifications. And we even dug up a couple of German helmets in the garden when we were kids and wow. used to wear them while we rode our bikes around. Oh, wow. That's, wow. What a, what a time. What a picture you've painted. Yeah, no, it's a special place. There's loads of history and, and yes, lots of community. Yeah. So you said you picked up theatre in the gutter. Where was that gutter (laughs) you picked it up from? Well, I started sort of drifting towards things like forming stuff at school. Not that there was much of it. Again, the school wasn't really uh, interested in the arts particularly. Yeah. I was more interested in the army and banks from my my memory. (laughs) But I wasn't a very good student and I managed to get into a teacher training college or as they were called colleges of education in the 70s to do drama now that was to do drama obviously to be a drama teacher yeah but I sort of knew fairly early on probably week two that I was never going to actually be a teacher so I just did lots of plays yet now you teach right (laughs) Um, well I do do but yes it's teaching people who want to be taught ah yeah yeah is a very different prospect to uh school teaching where you've got to kind of sell your (laughs) sell your enthusiasm I wasn't so good at that so what took you to like from there as the drama teacher teaching in school's life to the the stage well I got a degree bachelor of education then myself and my partner who's now my wife we went um, traveling for a year Mm. as people were beginning to do back then in the in the 70s and then I managed to get a job in a theatre oh. when I got back to London. Now, back then, when we're talking mid-70s, the system still was the only way of getting into the union. Of course, acting was a closed shop yeah. in the UK, which right. meant you had to be a member of the union or you couldn't work. And the only way you could become the member of a union was to get a job with a theatre. And there were lots of theatres around the country, but each theatre could only give away two new union tickets per year so if you could get a job as what they called an acting assistant stage manager that was the way in and that's what I managed to do in this theatre in East London so you really work backstage largely I work with the carpenter quite a lot and then you got sort of micro roles of coming on uh, you know with two lines and getting off again the butler or that was the way in (laughs) to the business yeah. Like the lottery. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a bit. There would have been a lot of people knocking on the door trying to mm. try and just get a start. So how come you came to Australia? What brought that? How long were you there working in the theatre before coming here? Uh, I had about four years, but it was in England. I had three contracts of a year each. I still didn't even have an agent because I didn't come through a rada or lambda or whatever mm, mm-hmm. i was still very green i didn't really know what i was doing i was sort of swimming around anyway we had a baby and then we lost we we had a cot death stevie and i oh. uh, we lost our little boy at the age of five months and um the next day we were driving around in a complete daze and um, thought let's go to australia we'd thought about it before but we thought we'd come and kind of get ourselves back together and then go home but um it was so good here we stayed. I'm so sorry about that. What a life-changing experience. Life is determined by, by random events much more than, you know, we all make plans and 
as we know with COVID, we've all made plans of all kinds, but it's the random events which really are the big um, turning points, I think, in most people's lives. What was it about the theatre that made you think, I want to be on the stage, not be a teacher, or, or even just to you know, take on that as opposed to banking or being a surgeon like your dad? Oh, God. <laughs> what a question. I've lain awake at night often, I suppose, trying to work that one out. <laughs> I think when I was very, very small, the first job that I announced that I was going to do when I was about three was I was going to be a clown. Oh. And um, so I think I've always, you know, performing has been a relatively comfortable mode for me as a personality, I suppose. You know, we all get nervous and we're all uh, terrified a lot of the time when we're doing what we're doing, but still some people would would never dream of performing and others just that's kind of what they want to do. Yeah, and the stage, the stage is an interesting thing because the stage, it can be a stage in different theatres, different countries, different venues, but the stage is the stage. So in a sense, there's a certain homecoming to to the stage because it is just the stage and you just hope there's going to be a good audience out there and um, you're going to have a great time and and a good drink in the bar afterwards (laughs) have there been many of those big turning points for you for the on the theater and and on the stage sort of sliding sliding doors moments i suppose yes there's been some good ones and some bad ones i think I've, i've had a few breaks with TV and film, very not many, but a few TV breaks where I've had good roles and they haven't really turned into anything. So I suppose in a sense that was, you know, that was a sliding door moment that really wasn't my choice, but I think uh, probably told me that I was not as well suited for the screen work as I was for the stage. When I met Melissa Stafford and we started Opunsky's Theatre with a bunch of other young hopefuls, this was in 1990, so it was quite a long time ago. Mm. So that that encounter was, you know, if I look back on my career, that was a very significant moment because we set up a, a creative relationship then, which we've still got and which we still come together from time to time and do stuff off our own bat with our own energy. We don't wait around for other people to roll out the red carpet. We have to do it ourselves. And that's that's been very important to me. You said there's some sliding doors where you realized you were not as made out for the screen how do you not let the profession or the career not be wrapped up in your worth as a person well look i've been lucky i've got a full life outside of my profession i've got a fantastic partner i've got three kids and i've got um, seven grandkids and um i've always kept myself busy you know i never had much money because (laughs) as an actor you don't have money you have time so you have to turn your hand to other things so renovating houses or building a shed or doing this or doing that you become very yeah you learn to fill your life I think I certainly haven't waited around for the phone to ring (laughs) so tell me a bit about Aponskis and and the decisions you make in what you put on and the the makeup of the the company Melissa was an actor who came to Australia in the I think about, oh, I'm not quite sure, the end of the 80s, he'd been very active in the Druid Theatre in Galway, and the Druid had a sort of international profile. And I'd also been working in Sydney with, I don't know if you remember, Bogdan Kotza, no. Polish director, 
So I'd done quite a lot of what we now call independent theatre, although Bogdan used to get funding back in those days. Most shows on the fringe or what we now call independent theatre would, would have got funding. But with Opunskis, we started doing stuff without waiting for the funding. Mm-hmm. That was sort of a, a little bit groundbreaking amongst our peers because it wasn't considered to be a good tactic. I wouldn't say there was a plan, a grand plan, Regina. We just <laughs> occasionally someone would read a play and we'd come together and we'd say, yeah, let's do that. Or mm-hmm. someone found a venue and there was an opportunity to do something. So we'd think of something to do. We did play readings. We created some uh, original work along the way. But it wasn't continuous you know we just come together from every year or every other mm-hmm. year and then it, mm-hmm. it's a difficult art form isn't it theater is a hard art form if you're a musician yes you can play with a band you can play with another band or you can sit down and play your own instrument if you're a poet obviously you that's a fairly lonely road but you you can do it whenever you want but with theater you've got to have other people for the most part then you need a venue then you need a dates and everything. So the logistics of being a theatre artist are quite challenging. The business of putting something, getting it together and putting it on, it's a... It's time consuming. Mm. It takes a long, long time and it's really hard to practice it, (laughs) I think. You don't count the hours, that's for sure. So what have you seen change then since, uh, let's say, the 70s or you hinted at you know, you putting money in and, and starting things yourself. What have you seen change over the years? Well, it used to be that Sydney didn't really have much of that sort of thing going on, but mm. but Melbourne did. I don't know if you remember that. Again, back in the 80s, Melbourne seemed to be the place where people were doing independent work and it was much more artistic and creative. And mm. Sydney was the emerald city where unless you got paid, you didn't do it. Yeah, but uh, so the face of Sydney has changed enormously. I mean, with places like the old Fitzroy, we started out at the crossroads. I don't know if you remember that in in no. the cross. It was just an old hall, and um, it didn't cost much, and and you could make a bit of money on the bar because no one was, mm-hmm. um, you know, it wasn't regulated yeah. the way things are regulated these days. The fire mm-hmm. rules weren't as in, as in your face, and I don't know it was more kind of maverick time I guess you could just get on and do it and now of course there's lots of people doing it yeah there's there's more independent theatre there's more theatre going on regionally as well it's not a huge amount and it's not terribly well supported either by certainly not by government because there's never enough venues Mm. Australia still has this identity with sport but not the arts at least that's the way it sees itself but it's not Mm. statistics don't uh, necessarily bear that up yeah and yeah certainly a different time from when you had to you know wait at the door get that lottery ticket so to speak tell me about how you came upon Victor Hugo and where the connection is with where you're from in Guernsey right well Victor Hugo we all know Les Miserables and we probably all know uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame or Notre Dame de Paris Mm. as it is called in French written by Victor Hugo, who was alive for the best part of the 19th century, the 1800s. Yeah. Huge character. He started off his creative life largely writing plays in Paris, and he was one of the romantic movement, and they were sort of groundbreaking in their own way, difficult to get our heads around it these days. But And then, of course, the politics of 
France were unfolding. The French Revolution didn't happen in a day. It took about 100 years pretty much to go from being the, you know, the beginnings of the revolution to what we, to the republic as we know it. Mm -hmm. And Hugo was very involved in politics. He was a bit like Charles Dickens, who's very focused on social issues, social justice. He campaigned against uh, capital punishment, for example. And he was, he served on the Senate in the French government as it was evolving back then. And he got into strife with Napoleon III, I think it's a nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, mm -hmm. who was running the country and he was about to be thrown in jail. But when his mistress managed to get him out of the country, she managed to get passport off someone and some old clothes and she bundled him into a carriage and, and off they trotted to Belgium. And then from Belgium, he went to Jersey, which is another Channel Island. And when he was going to settle there, but then when he insulted the Queen, so they kicked him out. So he went to Guernsey and he was in political exile on the island of Guernsey for 15 years, mm. which is um, a long time. Probably his most productive time because he wasn't distracted by all the, uh, the fun and games of Paris. He lived on the island. It was where he pretty much finished off. Les Mis was published from Guernsey. It's actually published in Brussels, but the, all the proofs and everything went to and fro from Guernsey. But also while he was there, he wrote a novel called The Toilers of the Sea, which is probably his third most popular novel. He wrote a lot of novels, but we don't know much about most of them. Mm -hmm. So The Toilers of the Sea is this little novel set in and around the Channel Islands and the coast of France, which he then dedicated to the people of Guernsey. So I, at a very late stage in my life, I read this novel and it, it impacted me in that way. You've, you've heard other people say this, that it spoke to their spiritual dream time, if you like. It, he talked about the, the geography and the rocks and the towns and the people that I grew up alongside right and so I kind of lapped it all up and thought oh I'll do I'll do something with this and then over the years I did do something with it and that's what the brainstorm the brainstorm is the ultimate result of that relationship with that novel and that man there's something about uh, good writing that captures an atmosphere which is sort of alive in in the room around you when you read it or hear it is my sort of sense of that. So how have you like taken this to the stage? Well, my journey was I thought I thought I'll do an audio book first of all. I'll, which you've done a number of, yes, yeah. Which I've done a few of and a lot of the writing of that period and Hugo's the worst. He goes off on long long tangents. So <laughs> <laughs> Books are really fat. And in back in those days when people didn't have cinema and TV, they were probably very happy to be diverted. Mm. Um, but audiences these days like to cut to the chase. So I cut the book down to about 50%. I kind of take out a lot of the diversions. So I did that and I did it as an audio book and published it as a self-published abridged text. And then I set about distilling it even further Mm -hmm. And so the idea for the play is that I am Victor mm -hmm. and I'm brainstorming the story. So right. he, used to, he had a, a studio which was like, rather like a conservatory on the top of his house in Guernsey. And from that studio, he looked out over the English Channel, over the islands around Guernsey, over the port of St. Peter Port. You could see the coast of France 
from up there and he wow. he worked hard he would be up there at dawn every day he didn't sit down he had a lectern at either end of this conservatory and he'd pace up and down <gasps> and write standing up wow um, <laughs> so the idea is that i'm kind of him in this in this space bringing together all the essential elements of the story so it's as if all these things have he's seen certain things seen certain characters seen certain situations seen certain geographical places and he's putting them bringing them all in to the story so he's weaving weaving the yarn if you like from his um, observations and his experience uh, so that's basically the setup to it what i do at the same time is i've i've sort of looked into his personal life and there was a personal tragedy unfolding in his in his own life. And so by taking him to one side and a, some letter writing, which I've, you know, that's, they're not real letters. These are things that I've completely made up. We learned something about this backstory, if you like, personal backstory, which is unfolding. And the two, the story of the novel and the story of Hugo are kind of woven together in this, um, in this little play. Yeah. And you use uh, projections as well. Yeah, well, Hugo, it turns out he was also quite a groundbreaking artist. Wow. And um, What a man. <laughs> yeah, well, he was, he was, oh, look, I think he would have been insufferable. Oh, he was, quite the original title for the play was Victor Ego. Yeah. It's now, I just call it the brainstorm now, but it was, I think he was the kind of guy, look, I'm doing a lot of talking at the moment, Regina, I'm very aware of that. He would not have stopped. Not for one second. He, oh, really? I think he was one of those personalities who probably was extraordinary and amazing and inspiring, but possibly really infuriating at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yes, he was, a, he was also a visual artist and he's got amazing, again, as a romantic, some of them are very obscure, sort of inky things, almost like... Um, Oh, what are those things you do where you splosh ink on the paint and fall? Um, kind of um, raw shark tests. Raw shark. So almost some of them are almost like that. Some are very detailed. He worked mm. with coffee and octopus ink and mm. paintbrushes. He'd never, I don't think he used real paints very often. And some of the, his work is illustrations of his stories and some just paintings. Mm -hmm. Yes, I use some of those as as projections and I've had... A uh, fantastic visual artist, screen projection artist, bring some of them to life. So um, animating them. Yeah. What, so one of the main characters in the Toilets of the Sea is an octopus. There's a scene where he fights a huge octopus. Well, Victor Hugo painted this octopus. It's a beautiful ink drawing, and uh, my friend Scott is able to make this thing come alive. So it's all. Uh, all the tentacles are moving and oh. the thing emerges from behind a rock and so so yes we've managed to animate some of the the drawings which just you know adds to the the theater of the piece fantastic what a i don't know a man ahead of his time too with his stand-up desk <laughs> so now <That's> right. <laughs> what a character last question i want to ask you about the kind of characters i mean you've played many of them over the years what is the learning from playing these other characters. Right. Well, I suppose, and character is the right word. You know, there's some actors act 
and some are very good at being. And I suppose I, I enjoy creating something that has a physicality, has a kind of vocal quirks, if you like. I rely on the writer and the story, I suppose. Yes, I, I don't normally create things out of nowhere. I'm, actors are often just the mouthpieces for the writer, where they should be. So I don't know whether I've learned any more about people really through being an actor than I would have done if I'd been anything else. So I've got you know natural empathy, I guess. But I just enjoy anything, any colour, and I think we all do, because it's, although I'm rambling here, I'm mm -hmm. sort of searching for what it is, what the essence of it is, but you, you're creating something that's larger than life. So you've, you've got to have some understanding or some sensitivity or some feeling for life. But then you've, the job is to kind of take it to another level, to, to distill stuff and to make it a bit larger than life so that it's attractive, so that people want to watch it, so that people are drawn in to what you're doing. And, of course, listening, listening to the other actor. Although when you're doing a one-man show, that's not an essential skill. <laughs> Well, I guess then it's listening to the audience in a way, not listening to them, you know, in the sound, but in a, a, a visceral sense or a physical sense, would you say? Yeah, you look, live performance is, it's different every night. I'll say that yeah. always, well, actors always say that it's different every night and Tuesday night audiences are this and oh, it's a typical Saturday night or, you know, and you can have a full house where they're dead and the three people in where they're all, they're so brilliant. You, you want to go and hug them after the show. <laughs> yeah. Look, this is the second um, one-man show I've done. Oh, yes. I would never have done this one if I hadn't done the other. The other was The Via Dolorosa, written by David Hare, which <sighs> follows the story that he wrote after visiting Palestine and Israel back in the 90s, I think. But even in that one, I saw him perform it, and he pretty much just told the story, whereas when I did it, all the other characters, I, that's what I lapped up, was all these different characters. And you can have a conversation. I can be three people on the stage at once and have a conversation between three people mm. just as one actor. And I find mm. that's, that's very satisfying because it works and it's very satisfying and, and thrilling to do. And it sounds a bit like not derogatory, but a bit like the clown that takes on a, a character in, in, of sorts and, and changes from making, <laughs> drawing a long line. Maybe, maybe, and maybe <laughs> maybe it's um, sometimes you beat yourself up, you think, oh, this is too superficial. But if the story's good, then the story does the work and, and your job is to just bring it alive and alive as much as you possibly can on, on a, as many dimensions as possible. And the emotional stuff... That, that has to just, that sort of follows. Other people start with the emotional work and go the other way. Mm. It, that's, that's not been my, my mode, I don't think. I think I was drawing, trying to draw the line from your original wanting to be when you grow up. Patrick Dixon, thank you so much for joining me. I really hope we get to see Brainstorm in one form or another at some time, if not Yeah, this look, time. it's not looking very good today as we speak, Regina. Mm. I, I don't think we're going to see performance for a month or two and if we do it'll be 50% audience wearing masks which mm. doesn't sound terribly attractive or online <laughs> or online but we will get there we'll get yeah, there yeah. And, and then we'll get to the bar after the show 
Yes, indeed. Thank you again, Patrick Dixon. Well, thank you, Regina. Thank you. Well, that was Patrick Dixon talking with me about his life in the theatre and we hope that sometime soon we will see the brainstorm and be back in the theatre.